Welcome to episode 9 of the Analytics FC podcast. Uh, myself, Tom Warville. I've got with me Sam, as usual. Uh, and our guest this week is uh, Joel Salomon, uh, also known as Messi Minutes and also known as Messi Seconds. Uh, hey, guys. I don't, I don't really know either. <laughs> hey, it's good to be here. How are you? Doing good, doing good. Sam, you good? Yeah, it's good to be back. So, yeah, let, let's, get, let's get down to things. Um, Joel, just uh, a bit about yourself. So, obviously, you've got the, the two... Uh, Twitter accounts. You've got the YouTube channel, which has a you know quite a variety of stuff. Not not mainly analytics. You do a lot of FIFA on Twitch, um, football politics, stuff like that. So, what's your sort of interest in analytics uh, and in football in general? I think you summed it up better than I could. Um, I guess I don't. Uh, I never really had a connection to football from home. Um, so, without meaning to disrespect people that enjoy fan culture for themselves, that's fantastic. It was never really my thing. Uh, and when I saw people like Ted Nutson two years ago or whatever, uh, like unlocking the secrets of the game with numbers, it was incredible football nerds, uh, explosions in my head, and I've been loving it ever since. And you also have a role at Bristol City. Can you go over a little bit what that is and what you do with them? Yeah. Um, so I'm a performance analyst at Bristol City, or kind of more casually at Bristol City Academy. Uh, it's like a lot of video, a bit of coding, a bit of data analysis, and hopefully soon in future, uh, some medical data analysis, working with coaches, getting coaching badges, that sort of thing. So sort of one of the main reasons, I mean, we've been discussing for a while, and you've been messaging us for a while, trying to get this podcast on with you. And the sort of the big sort of link I see is the analytics community can be quite meta and quite sort of uh, enclosed within itself. And then you have your sort of, your exposure to say messy minutes and all the followers of that are more general football fans. Um, How do you feel sort of analytics, you know, is it slowly from what you've seen with interaction of sort of the everyday fan, is it becoming more sort of prevalent in, in football in just sort of general terms? Or is it this sort of still like a very small area that, it's only like people like myself and Sam and yourself who really take an interest and, and look at this sort of thing. I, I think it can become more general. Uh, I mean, the analysts have certainly made, uh, certain analysts have made things really accessible. So, for example, uh, Michael Cayley's getting a lot of followers at the moment because the expected goal stuff he does is not only a clever math, a lot of it's clever analytics, and he's a fantastic data analyst. Um, but the way he presents it is something that is very uh if you are quote unquote i don't mean to sound too patronizing uh just a football fan um and you're not don't already have that interest uh in analytics then he makes it something that's really accessible and other people do that very well too uh so it's growing and it's uh exciting and i'm sure you guys are excited to to be part of that yeah now with the youtube channel i'm assuming that you get sort of a young younger demographic watching your stuff reading your stuff on twitter and I'm just wondering, do you think that younger people are in general more open to this kind of thing? Because even if you look at sort of the demographics of analysts we have, there's a lot more guys who are in university or just out of university that are really into this and I think tend to be more excited about new ways to take football. Do you find that because of your demographics, you have a more open crowd? Uh, what do you mean by open? Open to analytics, like open to new concepts and that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm I'm scared that's because I've generated like my own echo chamber around me. Uh, but I, I am lucky enough, uh, particularly on, on Messy Seconds, to have an incredibly engaged, interesting audience. So, um, so like, for example, I'll run like fee streams, right? Just gaming streams, standard stuff, um, which is very not analytics-y. But 
in what we do, it like becomes a conversation about expected goals. It becomes a conversation about, I don't know, Shapley values, sex education, Corbynism. Like it's, <laughs> the, the audience is definitely out there. So even in like more trivial things, uh, converse with people. And I, I do think that people are interested and engaged with it. I do think that people are a little bit sick of when Alan Shearer complains about Theo Watt's mentality and uses other crap cliches to uh, like generate whatever points he wants to make inside of his own head. I think people do get a little bit frustrated when certain football statistics websites put out stuff that they know isn't really true about interceptions or tackles for individual uh, midfielders. And people don't see that intuitive link. And perhaps it's because that intuitive link doesn't exist and when people see that um that there is a different way of doing it that you can understand the game but even without like a a huge um interest in in the maths of stuff uh, that you can understand the game in a different sense in <laughs> perhaps although slightly pretentious a quote-unquote better sense uh with analytics yeah i think that young people are getting involved it's exciting now, one thing that we've seen with analytics, I think, is that it's also it's just part of thinking about football in a different way. They see a lot of guys who are now really, really into intense tactical analysis. And if you read some of these articles, you need to have a vocabulary list beside you because you're not able to read them unless you sort of get into this new mode of thinking. Do you think there's any other ways that people are... You talked about like on your FIFA streams, you're going beyond just the basics. Are there any other ways that you think people are going more in-depth other than just analytics? Uh, yeah, I mean, you can see um, there's like a small, cool tactics community that's building up on Twitter as well, um, alongside the analytics stuff. And I think some of the best people writing there try and incorporate the best of both worlds. Like, I'm not even going to try and pronounce uh, the guys that, you know, that you know, the kind of yeah. people I'm talking about. I was, I was trying to hint at them and didn't want to try to pronounce them either. <laughs> Rene Marek, Rene Maric, you know, all of those guys. Um, yeah, I think they're doing a fantastic job. Uh, you, can, you can see that, um, that, that there's definitely room to grow in terms of making stuff more accessible. But they are doing it to much larger audiences now, and they're doing it effectively uh, like has been seen in that, in that smaller analytics community. I think the, the point you just said about accessibility, I think that's the next big sort of... Uh, step in, in both sort of tactics and analytics I think that once you have an understanding then you can go on to read stuff about you know anything in stats and analytics because you understand the basics but I think there's definitely a gap in the market for someone to come in and sort of do a literal how-to of understanding what an analysis means what an expected goal is because like say expected goal is a very basic um, sort of on the on the face of it a very basic sort of tool it's the quality of a shot but without saying that and without explaining sort of that in very basic terms, it turns a lot of people away from it purely because it, it's got this whole sort of demeanor around it where stats and analytics are sort of portrayed in a negative light. And I think that, you know, we, we try to do it on the podcast and it's uh, hopefully it's quite accessible in terms of you can listen and we're not talking about, you know, pure numbers. But in terms of other writing and, and sort of even, you know, you, you've done a couple of videos in, on your channel about sort of what is analytics and how it doesn't really work for defensive stuff, which is fantastic because it means that the casual fan can say, you know, find writing like Kaylee, uh, you know, any of our stuff and just sort of say, well, I can understand this a bit more now because I read so-and-so or listened to so-and-so and it made it a lot more clear. But I still think there's a massive gap in the area for someone to come in and sort of democratize stats uh, and analytics for, for more people. Mm, definitely um i find that people really don't like uh so an idea that's really prevalent in football analytics is the idea in one way or another that a team or a player or some sort of entity like that can be quote-unquote lucky 
And a lot of people from outside of this small community don't seem to like that. Like the idea that Mares this season has been very lucky or um, that side of expected goals, like this player should have scored more, should have conceded less. Uh, like with Arsenal this season, people don't like the idea that Arsenal, typically if you ran those games again, probably would have scored more. Um, and, and combating those sort of uh, preconceptions and, and um, similar ideas is something which I think is another challenge. So on that, on that last point, is, are there any sort of other similar things that you see from fans that they don't like about the game? Because obviously a lot of this, a lot of analytics stuff is useful for coaches, it's useful for managers, scouts, you know, recruitment, but probably the biggest base for analytics and, and stats is going to be for the fan. So in terms of like obviously luck and randomness, is there anything else that people sort of complain or see that when you sort of post analytical content? So uh, someone mentioned to me recently that perhaps there is almost an inherent arrogance in football analytics. So uh, I I suggested that there was not, because in my experience, uh, data analysts on Twitter are the people that understand um, what's bad about their work, like the limitations of their work, better than anyone else, certainly better than people that don't understand the work. But um, at its core... Analytics is kind of saying, we think, at least in one specific way, we understand the game better than you do, or we understand it in a different way that's more helpful, at least in some respect, than what you're doing. And I think that kind of um, almost threat is something which might be scary for certain journalists, certain fans, whatever. Uh, I don't think it's the case when you actually go inside, but uh, again, preconceptions. This leads into a concept that sort of came up during the transfer window a lot, which is the idea of the difference between smart clubs and dumb clubs. And I think a lot of that comes from what you, well, you could say could be perceived as arrogance and analytics saying this club is really dumb and making a lot of dumb signings, or this club is doing really, really smart things. And I'm curious, do you think there's like a big difference between what we perceive as a dumb club and what we perceive as a smart club? And do you think we sort of have it figured out? Like, do we know on the outside which clubs are actually doing things smarter or is what's on the inside do you think very different than what we all say this is a smart club and this is not a smart club well a smart club is a club that's making smart decisions consistently and systematically no so for example Wijnaldum to Newcastle probably looks like a smart signing um but like like when Joe Kinney had a big role in that club and there are their other signings you'd say that perhaps Newcastle aren't a smart quote-unquote team um whereas others that's not true for so like sure there's an arrogance to it I, I think we can suss out which teams are clever and which ones aren't uh teams that are making clearly terrible decisions like i don't know signing ashley young up to a four-year contract at the age of 30 given the profile that he has other stupid stuff like that versus i don't know chelsea who are making a mixed bag of decisions on one hand their loan system was a clever way of bypassing ffp and having bright players for the future unfortunately it didn't work out for political reasons and perhaps they should have seen that and they should have signed a center back whatever uh, City signed very well this summer um, and generally seem to have in the past had a very good analytics department. Um, so I, I think we can, uh, to some extent, you know, tell which clubs are uh, clever or not. And sort of similarly, when we talk about smart clubs, we, we're apart from, you know, Brentford and probably Mitchell and the sort of usual smart clubs <laughs> are usually a lot smaller. Uh, and you don't really see anyone going, you know, you know, oh, Manchester City are a really smart team because usually that's a lot more, you know, they have the money uh, to sort of be able to make expensive mistakes. 
Um, do you think that this sort of precludes big clubs from being smart just because they have a lot of money, or do you think that a big team can actually be a smart team as well? You probably already <laughs> answered it saying that um, you know, sort of, you have to make smart decisions, so it's probably not all about the money, but there are factors you know, that might preclude bigger clubs from being smart. Yeah, I, I think it's about the separation of uh, money ball and kind of being smart in general. So if you're Manchester United, um, I don't think that we're suggesting that you need to make these really cheap signings that turn out to be really good of, because of what the numbers say. But it's about not making those really stupid decisions, not overpaying for the majority of players over the last three years. Um, you can still make smart decisions without making cheap decisions. Uh and so, so some people will say that uh, these kind of techniques, I don't know, only work in Denmark because it's a smaller league or something. I, I don't really understand that. If anything, if the incentives are bigger, if the motive, the money is bigger, um, if you're trying to win Champions Leagues instead of coming second in the league, then those gaps are e- even bigger. If you can spend your resources to maximise your performance uh, to an even greater extent, then, then that's huge. And I think that um, the big clubs can do that. And I don't think that a smart club, quote unquote, has to be a money ball club, has to be a small club. That it got a lot of attention this past year was Juventus sort of for making these smart decisions on a bigger scale. But even they were sort of seen as, at least when we got to the Champions League semifinals, they were sort of the small club amongst those big three teams they're up against. And I think a lot of what comes down to this lenience we give small clubs is the fact that we do allow them to have bad results. I think the perfect example is looking at Juve start to the season this year versus Chelsea. I mean, Juventus went much further in the Champions League last year than Chelsea did. Yet two games into the season, three games into the Serie A season, I think we are now, Juventus has one point and has a lot less pressure on them than uh, Chelsea does. And I think it is just this idea room to be smart because we're giving them so much less leniency and a club like Juventus which is definitely a big club we give more leniency to so we can allow them to we can call them smart even though they're probably doing very similar things to clubs like Chelsea and other big clubs that are doing well. Mm. I think the difficulty with football is that the narratives can just change so quickly like with Juventus everyone's saying oh you know is it second season syndrome is it the same as Chelsea but what people don't sort of look beyond is the fact that they've had massive squad changes over the summer so they lost Tevez and they've they've gained Dybala, Mandzukic, uh, you know Kadir has come in there's been quite a lot of change within that squad which might Vidal. exactly yeah his departure Perlo even you know there's a lot of disruption within that team but it's so easy to sort of make comparisons cross league. Um, but then equally, you know, Chelsea haven't had that much change, and then it sort of questions the desire of the team potentially, or even just unlucky. <laughs> uh, as much as people don't like that word, could it be down to that? But it's interesting. I really like the sort of smart dumb club debate because we'll probably see it more and more in the future because of teams say like, I mean, Aston Villa hired quite a, a smart. Um, sort of technical director of sorts anyway and they've made some pretty you know decent signings I think Jordan Amavi was a really uh, standout Mm. left back sort of on very basic sort of chance creation stats last year so more things like that yeah that that's the example I was going to give Aston Villa after selling Benteke seemed to make consistently quite similar quite smart signings Um, and you'd have to say that maybe maybe it's not but it looks like that that could be um, could be a sign of like a bigger plan, whereas I don't know a similar club like Everton and John Stones and the fact that they don't want to sell them at forty million, like <laughs> maybe a, a similar plan isn't in place in Liverpool. 
I also think we've seen a lot of like uh, hypocrisy, I think, in the way that we evaluate these clubs at, during the transfer windows. Is you hear a lot of people say, oh, this club's doing well, this club isn't doing well, but we have to wait and see. And you think, well, if we're evaluating them, the transfers and the decisions they make, we really should be evaluating this, this, these decisions at time zero rather than waiting a year and then looking back and saying, oh, retroactively deciding which moves were smart and which moves weren't because of which <laughs> players panned out. And I think there is definitely value in saying at the time, okay, this we I think this move is good. Like stick your stick your flag in the ground, say which moves you think are good, and then go back and maybe learn learn from what clubs you thought were doing a good job and what clubs you weren't, rather than just waiting and saying, oh well, looking back, clearly the Martial signing was the best signing of the summer because he turned out to be the next Messi rather than waiting. I think that's right. And like, there are so many pieces run. Uh, one that highlighted recently was the fact that uh, Leicester signed Riyad Mahrez for something like £350,000. But it's like, you cannot link, you cannot go and link like him being very good in a small sample size at the start of this season against the fact that they saw that potential in him three years ago, whatever it was. It's just, I mean, but then again, equally, if you say time zero, it's really hard to go and say with these, especially these smaller signings, say like Mares, that they knew what they were doing at that time. But well, that's the thing. I mean, no one expected Mares to have as good a start to the season as he has for Leicester, right? You just—it's one of these things where we look at it now and say, "Oh, this was such a smart signing." But Leicester probably didn't expect him to be what he is right now, and he probably won't be what he is right now for the rest of the season. Yeah, isn't he still on like twenty percent conversion rate, twenty-five percent conversion rate? It's crazy. I think he was on 6% in the championship last year. Maybe. I might be talking out of my arse there. Uh, but you would expect him to drop off a bit. Definitely. And even if you just look at the goals, like I think his first one was a backwards header. And then he just scored like a pretty good 30-yard like screamer. It's not like these are repeatable goals. I think that's sort of what Joel was getting at the beginning. That when he's talking about Mares, is that people don't like to say he's getting lucky. And part of it is because he's been so much fun to watch these first couple of weeks. He had that one vine that was going all around uh, Twitter when he, and his, I think it was in the last game, might have been two games ago. But it's just all these little things that are so much fun. And if you're told, oh, he's just getting lucky, this is randomness, it's not repeatable, it sort of takes away from it in a way. And you have to sort of, I think, as an analytic, as someone who enjoys analytics and also just enjoys watching football, you have to train yourself to be able to accept both things, accept that watching this player is fun. And I'm really enjoying watching Mars for the first five weeks of the season. But this probably isn't Mares for the next 31 weeks of the season or whatever. So we've been talking almost entirely about transfers so far and whether clubs are smart or not smart. Do you think there's other ways we should be evaluating clubs other than transfers? Because it seems to be literally the only thing we talk we're talking about the difference between these two types of clubs. Well, transfers are relatively transparent. Uh, and it's difficult to find that kind of... Because otherwise, uh, it can get a little bit speculative. Outside of that, uh, I mean, there are news stories and there are issues and you can draw narratives um, in that way. But transfers, generally, the fees and wages are reported and you know who's coming in and out of what. So I think it is a good way of uh, talking about who's doing well and who's doing not, if only because um, it's one of the only ways where we, we know what they're doing, on the inside at least. Mm. So obviously transfers is one big thing. Um, do you, do you sort of think yourself there are any other areas where teams can be smart? So obviously teams make decisions which aren't really smart but sort of necessary in terms of, say, uh, paying the living wage now. I think quite a lot of teams are starting to adopt that. It's not very 
smart, but it's the sort of the right thing that a team or say a business of this size should be doing. Um, you know, what do you, but I was sort of thinking back to soccernomics and there was that big part about clubs that paid. And anyways, this is the book that came out probably like it had a different name in England, had a much better name in England. I can't remember what it was, but, um, why England is, was that it? Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so it was soccernomics in Canada and, um, they had this great chapter on basically paying what you should be paying or spending a lot of money on that isn't necessarily player wages or transfer fees. And they talked a lot about being able to acclimatize players. Like they looked at Leon, who apparently spent a lot of money on actually like getting translators for every player coming from abroad, having real estate agents to help the player right away and real estate agents who they knew were good. And just little things like this, which made the club run a lot better and made new players feel much more at home when they came to the club or when they came to a new city in a new country. And that sort of thing, I think, as Joel was saying, like we can't, we don't know what clubs are doing that, what clubs aren't. So it's hard to sort of analyze that from abroad. But I think that definitely plays into the smart versus less smart de- uh, debate between clubs. So, do you have anything else which, um, uh, other than transfers, which you would use as like uh, an amateur or just generally someone that doesn't have inside knowledge to judge these clubs? Do you, Do you have anything which you use to judge them apart from transfers? I think managers, manager appointments, how long they keep managers on for and how much managers actually have say in transfers. I mean, famously, people always say like Tony Pulis is a good tactical manager or whatever that he can keep. He's done well with not a lot, but in the transfer market, he's terrible, right? So it's the idea of, okay, well, maybe if we're going to bring in a Tony Pulis, we have to set up some sort of system around him. And that's something we can see from afar. But again, that's managerial changes happen a lot less often than transfers so it's harder to sort of base your entire opinion on a club just based on how they treat managers mm. plus again like it's uh it's sometimes difficult to know it's easier to know for a Mourinho over 10 years but um other than that for how good a manager is I'm yeah I don't know. I'm a little bit scared that uh some of it is is perhaps too narrative based perhaps too speculative I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what a manager actually does, but <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, in like in all reality, I don't know on a day to day basis what Louis Van Hall is doing. If he's mm. biggest asset, the fact that his process in terms of planning, in terms of his personal interactions with players, I mean, I don't know. So I guess that's a good point that we don't really. A lot of it is probably narrative based and based on how the club is doing, or we sort of figure out we go back and prescribe ideas of how we think how happy we think the players are how well we think the manager gets along with certain players based on how well they're playing as opposed to what those relationships might actually be like yep yep pulling things back to um transfers again um sort of looking at ways that we can assess transfers and assess players and joel i know you're quite a big fan of uh, a goal impact um how useful do you think a tool like that is and how sort of reliable do you think it is? Because there are, there are times you obviously it passes the eye test in terms of ranking, say, Thomas Muller as the best player in the world. But then in, equally you have players like Stefan Ilsanker, who plays for uh, Red Bull Salzburg, or maybe Red Bull Leipzig now, I think. And he's supposed to be like the 11th best player in the world. What, what are your sort of thoughts on goal impact? And do you think there's a sort of a better system that could be created using a similar idea? Yeah, so goal impact specifically... Um... I'm not sure, firstly, because I don't understand Shapley values, because I, I don't know what's going on uh, under the boot, because it's a, it's a fantastic idea, but it's not a hugely transparent um, idea, and and perhaps it misses out on uh, 
on quite a few things, as you say. So I'd be a little bit um, scared about it. But I do, I do. So, for example, at the moment, people are talking about um, Olivier Giroud, and perhaps it's not a great example for him. But let's say Giroud was a terrible striker. I don't think he is. Who contributes a lot outside of shooting, outside of goals. Um, perhaps then you could say that a good striker is not a striker that scores lots of goals and has large stacking output. Perhaps a good striker is a player when uh, whom. Ah, sorry, mixing up the words. Um, when they are on the pitch, the team is shooting better, the team is scoring more, etc., than when they are not on the pitch, regardless of whether it's actually that player or the effect somehow that that player creates that's doing that job. Uh, maybe Giroud isn't, isn't the best example here, but that's the kind of question that I think goal impact answers met, uh, better than many other metrics answer and, and that's why I naturally I'm quite uh, drawn to it and also because it's quite economics and that's really my thing uh, but in terms of how you should evaluate transfers I think it's all about um, kind of a vague sense of net benefit so if Benzema goes to Bayern Munich is that a good transfer well Benzema's a fantastic player but how much better is he than Lewandowski could they have spent better resu- could they have spent those resources on a better alternative could they have spent those resources on uh, a player in a different position does it um, is the transfer predicated on Lewandowski leaving those kind of things uh, I think net benefit is very important so should Arsenal sign a striker this summer perhaps not perhaps Olivier Giroud is good enough and they could have spent their resources better on uh, various other outfielders that sort of thing so um that general sense of net benefit evaluated over time as well uh that's how i'd evaluate i think one thing that goal impact's good for i think is also looking at defending and defenders in general which brings us on to the idea of evaluating defenders which is what's a lot of people say is what's missing in analytics and i think almost everyone in analytics will admit it's a blind spot which actually tom took on this week so do you want to talk a little bit about the piece you wrote this week yeah, definitely. Um, so essentially, it was sort of a culmination of stuff I've been playing around within, uh, with GG plot, and then equally sort of looking at defenders and trying to answer the question of how the hell do we actually quantify, you know, how good these guys are. Uh, and it was to come up with a sort of expected goal relief metric, is what I'm terming it at the moment, uh, or defensive contribution. Um, so essentially, it's looking at a player's uh, defensive actions, whether they are successful or unsuccessful on the pitch during a game. Uh, and sort of applying uh, an expected goal's value from where the position of that action is and essentially saying, you know, if they make that tackle, the ball's no longer their area and there's not sort of the chance for the team to have a shot from where uh, the ball is at that time. Equally, if that action fails, say like a clearance fails, you know, the player missed the ball or he doesn't clear it that far um, and the, the ball's still sort of in that area, uh, you still have... The, the opposition still has the chance to sort of shoot, uh, you know, from that area, and they are, you know, that player has given up um, that expected goals rank you know, sort of value from that area. Um, so the sort of idea was to uh, summate all of the uh, sort of expected goal reliefs, either positive or negative, uh, for a side, and sort of look at quantifying a, an actual defensive uh, game. Um, it has its obvious drawbacks because, you know, some defensive actions are more positional based and they don't actually touch the ball or they're not recorded. Uh, and equally, some players just, you know, don't make any defensive actions. Say, if we looked at, I don't know, Maldini, when he was playing, he made a tackle once, like every two games or something outrageous. Uh, and, you know, he would never, you know, re- relief his side of any expected goals, as it were. Um but, it, you know, it, it looks, it passed the eye test quite well. I mean, um, my, I sort of did a, a graph on, uh, a chart on Twitter after I released the article of David Luiz against Germany. 
uh, in the World Cup, and he had a sort of an expected goal relief of 0.09. So essentially, he prevented uh, just about 10% of one goal in the 7-1 thrashing by Germany. Um, compared to, say, Ashley Williams here with um, against Arsenal at the Emirates, sort of saved his side about 1.25 expected goals in terms of relieving the ball from that uh, from those sort of danger areas on the pitch. Um, so two completely contrasting defensive displays, which you can try and quantify in the action, sort of how vital they were to their teams. So something a bit different. Obviously, it's not going to be the answer to sort of how do you quantify defending, but it's something quite visual uh, using the numbers and something that I found you know quite interesting. So... Yeah, watch this space. Going to be doing a bit more of that potentially in the future. But it's just like you say, like defending is so hard to do. Looking at raw statistics, Joel. I know you've said before on on, on YouTube and on Twitter. Essentially, just like it's it just doesn't work. So people have to think outside the box. You need to look at these goal impact style sort of macro analysis of defenders, and equally you have to do the sort of micro things that I've been trying to do this week, um, to sort of quantify whether this performance is any good or not. Um, but I think we're some way off. But it's it's obviously good to. Try different things, I guess. <laughs> hmm. I thought your idea and your piece was um, really insightful, really interesting. I, I perhaps some of the reason why collectively, or maybe I'm projecting, maybe it's just I say those kind of things about raw defensive stats is that I just don't feel very confident in my own ability to judge defenders. Uh, so when even professional managers are buying really expensive defenders like Marcotti shows in his brilliant piece, uh, and those defenders very rarely go on to become elite defenders. If you think about the elite defenders of today, the Sergio Ramos, uh, Boateng, uh, I don't know, Diego Godin, who else? All of those kind of defenders, Hummel, Subotic, are all not particularly, company as well, uh, are all fairly cheap, like not particularly expensive. I think Boateng and Ramos might be the most expensive of them. And so if they don't know how to judge defenders, uh, then I'm not very confident in my ability to. So you can definitely use analytics to uh, to show how teams defend, to try and gain that context and to try and show which team defends well, whether that's using that raw data or it's using uh, some sort of expected goals model like you're talking about. And then using more traditional scouting to select the particular players that you're interested in, if it's in a transfer sense. I think that could be really interesting, um, obviously, as well as uh, top-down metrics. And Dan Altman uh, did a brilliant thing. So one of his non-shot models, well, I think he only has one non-shot model uh, publicly, um, but it was how well does a player move the ball in the offensive third or in the offensive half of the pitch? And the opposite um, idea of that was how well does a particular defender manage not to get the ball nearer to their goal in their half of the pitch? Those kind of... Um, more assumption-free uh, bits of analysis I, I find really interesting and I think they might be the future, they might be the key to uh, defending and analytics. So moving on to sort of this summer's transfer window, what is one transfer that sticks out for you as being really good and one that sticks out for you as being really bad? Oof. What do you two think? I think I'm biased. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, you go first. Um, okay, I'll do the one I want to do. Um, I think one that I was um, really excited about was Dybala to Juventus. That one, for me, was it was one of these where they've clearly looked at options. There were a few options. There were a lot of strikers last year, or forwards last year in Serie A that had good numbers, and young forwards. Icardi was another really good one at Inter Milan. 
But I think to, looking at Dybala, first off, he passes the eye test. He's a fun player to watch. But he's one of these guys whose goal-scoring numbers was actually backed up by shot numbers, who had really good, who he had actually he had good key pass numbers as well. He just was one of these signs who looked like, okay, this is a guy who actually had a really, really good season last year and not just someone who's scoring a lot of goals. And that's not to say Cardi would have been like a terrible signing for Juventus or anything. But Dybala just seemed to me as this is a really, he's a strong player going, and it's not like one of these diamond in the rough kind of things. I mean, everyone knew he was good, but out of the options they had, I was really impressed that Juventus picked up that one. Why were you biased towards Dybala? I said I was. Oh no, that, no! I said I, I'm not choosing the one I was biased towards, I, which I think <laughs> we'll get on to next. <laughs> Sticking to Syria, I thought that Jovetic had this something than they have in previous ones, where it's been a bit more ad hoc. Um, he's a player that could have gone to if you're looking for like a young striker in Europe who can make a difference, uh, either first choice or maybe as backup in a squad. I thought Jovetic was a good option, but what can you do? Also, th- I think that the Sterling transfer was underrated um, because it's it's so caught up in the cloud of overpriced narrative, blah, blah, blah. I thought they got a pretty good... I thought Man City got a pretty um, good price for him. Yeah, I love the Sterling transfer. I think it's one of the mm. better ones in the summer. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about like... So City are going to have to have English players um, whatever happens because they're burdened with Greg Dyke and the FA's crap uh, homegrown laws. You might as well have fantastic ones. The best player probably in this generation. And Sterling at that price... Considering how much De Bruyne is going for, how much other really young talents uh, his age, where it's proven, where his numbers, fine, apart from his finishing, are fantastic. I thought that was really good. He also has had two really good seasons in a row now. Like two, I mean, not just good seasons. For a 19 and 20-year-old, I mean, exceptional seasons in the Premier League, so he's not changing leagues. I think it's a really, really good signing. I mean, to get it, you to buy a superstar, you're going to have to pay, at his peak, you're going to have to pay more than $50 million. And if you're paying $50 million for a guy who has... That kind of superstar potential at 20 years old, I think, is a really good signing. Mm. I, I think also that, that that transfer was judged on a very short-term sort of, you know, point of view. If we look at Wayne Rooney when he moved from Everton to Man United, I think it, it sort of in, in inflation terms, the fee wasn't too far off. What was it, 35 million? Which, I mean, you've got 15 million to make up there in 10 years, which I reckon, you know, you're you're close to 50 million there. Uh, in sort of real realistic terms, um, and if if Sterling stays at Man United for say you know eight ten years, Man you've made a really really good signing there, regardless of you know whether there's good years, uh, you know whether he's a superstar, whether he's just putting in solid minutes season after season. Like fifty million pound for a player that young that's getting big minutes now and is likely to get big minutes throughout his career is probably actually going to be quite good value. Um, but I think a lot of the media narrative, like you say, is going to be the pricing and oh, it's the English, you know. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm with you guys. I quite like that signing as well. Slight slip of the tongue. Uh, Man City, <laughs> not Man United. Oh. Uh, yeah, if he was foreign, I think a talent like Sterling might have gone for 50 million. I don't know. So the fact that he has that, um, and it, it's not like English players are just randomly overvalued and it's just because we like English men and that's why we pay more. It's because English clubs need those talents because of the homegrown laws, or the homegrown rules, rather. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I think it was a, a very good valuation on their part. My, uh, my, my favourite transfer of the summer was probably uh, Johan Kabay to Crystal Palace. Purely because it's... It, it, a couple of reasons. Purely one, because it's it's sort of a signal, a signal of their intent to sort of grow as a team. It's their their first double-digit sort of signing, I think, in terms of uh, transfer fee. Secondly, he's just a really, really 
class player. He was really good at Newcastle. Um, often touted to be a target for Arsenal before he moved to PSG, which was uh, quite sad because I would have quite liked him at Arsenal. And then, you know, thirdly, he's a, he's a good sort of piece in the jigsaw that is Crystal Palace. They're a really weird side in terms of they don't really like possession and they've started doing some really neat things from set pieces. And he sort of links together the sort of very attacking uh, side with, you know, Balassi, Zahar, uh, now Saka as well, who's another great signing, um, with sort of the defence which isn't, you know, historically been very good on the ball, very sort of possession orientated. So I think for quite a few reasons, he's a he's a really smart signing. Um, in terms of signings we don't like, uh, Sam, do you want to go first? A signing I really don't like this summer. Um, trying to think now of like, Okay, I'll go. well, there's one, uh, there's two that come to mind right away. I think the first one that I, um, which I t- talked about before on the show was uh, Petr Cech to Arsenal. Mm-hmm. I wasn't, a bit, it, I don't think it was the worst one, but it was one that I didn't like just because of, I think, it, can't, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about evaluating defenders and keepers, is that this is a guy who we haven't seen play in a year pretty much, who is aging who we don't and keepers have this weird sort of aging curve where they just fall off a cliff tend they tend to fall off a cliff towards the end of their careers it's a lot of money for him so far he's had a mixed bag which i mean basically he only had the one really bad game against west ham so i'm not going to blame him for that and then he had the good game against liverpool so that was one that uh i wasn't a big fan of and another one that i didn't like was pedro to chelsea and the reason i didn't like pedro to chelsea is because First off, I think it's a bit of uh, I think it's a bit of short termism because I think it's a lot of looking at Willian and Oscar last year and saying they didn't score enough goals, which I think they're both really good players and I think they have a lot to offer. And I think Pedro as a quick fix is sort of not necessarily not necessarily. It's I think it'll limit both those players. And I wasn't really too big on. Um, on that, uh, well, I was I was impressed with both of them last year, so I thought that was a little bit of short termism. And the second thing about Pedro is that he really we don't know what he is outside of the system. A lot of people have compared him to Alexis Sanchez, but the thing about Alexis Sanchez is he had really good seasons at Udinese before going to Barcelona, whereas we know nothing about Pedro outside of Barcelona. We've only seen him in that system, and I mean he scored a lot of goals. He's done well in that system, but we don't know how that's going to transfer to Chelsea. And so far, it's been again that one's been a bit of a mixed bag. Could you have picked two more controversial transfers to say that you didn't like? <laughs> a lot Petr of people. Petr and Pedro, they're some of the more. Yeah, a lot of people. Well, I we went on the Petr Cech thing a while back, but uh, Pedro. Yeah, no, I was. I didn't really want him at United, but I think him to United would have made a lot more sense than him to Chelsea because I just think you have Oscar and Willian there. Who I mean, I really do think it was because Mourinho said Oscar and Willian did not perform as well as I wanted them to last year. At the relatively not that expensive price that they're paying, considering he's kind of, depending on where you think peak years is, like roughly in the middle of his peak. Yeah. Uh, even if it's short termism, is the fact that you don't know what he's like in another system necessarily a um, something that detracts from how good the transfer is? I think so. I think if we don't know what this guy is outside of, I mean, and it's not like Barcelona is just any old other system. I mean, Barcelona is the most sort of the only other system I'd compare to it now would be that where you don't know, you have no idea how players can perform outside of that system would be Bayern Munich right now under Pep. Just, and obviously there's similarities there, but I just think we have no idea what kind of player he is. And he's been Chelsea's sort of 
big signing. He didn't address a lot of the issues we've seen with Chelsea so far. So, I'd, yeah, I'd, and I think it is something, I think that goes against the players if we don't know what they're going to bring outside of a certain system. Yeah, I agree they could have signed better elsewhere and that, like, that question mark and you don't want question marks over big players. But you're still talking about a big name, peak age winger. Uh, they, mm, yeah, I, I guess it's a distractor, but considering the price and considering he's uh, kind of at the top of at least his game, even if his game has been overrated at Barcelona or whatever, um, oh, I think it was okay. They should have signed a centre-back. Bloody hell. Well, they tried. <laughs> <laughs> they should have signed a centre-back that wasn't on stones for 40 million. Unbelievable. I, I don't know what's more mind-blowing, the idea that Chelsea offered 40 million for John Stones or the idea that Everton didn't accept it. That's crazy. I think I can settle the, uh, the worst transfer debate. Um, Mitrovic to Newcastle. Really? Absolute hothead. People have, I mean, I think before the window, people are obviously going to be like, oh, this guy, he's the new, he's the Serbian Shearer. And he comes in, he gets a yellow card after, what was it, like five seconds on one of the games? Uh, another red card, like, uh, man. It just seems a lot, obviously, again, woo, yeah, short term. Like, I really disagree with this one. Really? He's like, yeah, he's like 20 yeah, years yeah. old, and he's scored like one and two before coming here. Yeah, but Belgian league. Uh, I don't know. Like, I just think this is this is hugely different. But like, Rooney was the same, right? At I... that at that age, uh, pretty young, Rooney's getting yellows everywhere. Yeah, but not reds. <laughs> and also the goals that Rooney. I mean, oh god, it's hard. But I just think Rooney as a talent at that age was so much better. And I think Mitrovic is. Yeah, he's performed in in the best side in Belgium for a few years. Uh, I not, have no clue about his international record, but you know. It's so hard to sort of, like you see with Balotelli, it's so hard to keep these players who have evidently like a hot head and they have like struggled to keep their emotions in check while playing you know, on the pitch. And I just don't know whether Mitrovic is going to be able to do that. Like he, I don't know if he was out the side last night against West Ham, but there's a lot of work to be done before that, in my eyes, is going to be deemed as a good transfer, especially for the but money. Really? I'm, yeah. How old is he? I mean, he's, he's 20, 21, right? Like, yeah. I think that's a pretty big indictment on a 20-year-old that he's, for the rest of his life, now going to be deemed as too much of a hothead. <laughs> that man from Tom Warfield. <laughs> Hot takes. But um, I don't know. <laughs> that's the one from me. I'm not going to lie. And we'll see. And hopefully it plays at the end of the season that he's just been terrible. But considering sort of mm. what's going to happen now, he's going to win the Golden Boot or something. So <laughs> we'll see. There were clearly clubs in the last transfer window that should have made signings that didn't. I can't think of one that's really bad. Like, Arsenal, the defensive midfielder, they should have bought pretty much anyone. Chelsea in a centre-back, uh, they should have bought pretty much anyone. Wolfsburg, no, they got, they got attacking midfielders in. They didn't bring in a striker at the moment. They have uh, they lost Perisic, who kind of played on the wing, so whatever. They have Bastos, who's like the luckiest player in Europe last season, and Nicholas Bedner, currently leading their line. They've got Kroos in there, who's fantastic for making that back, but... So I, I don't know. <laughs> Considering the money that De Bruyne bought in, and it's not a small club, they're in the Champions League this season. I would have expected something from that. I think before we go to um, sort of wrap up the transfer window thing, I want to talk about Martial, and I know Sam wants to talk about Martial. And in our notes for this, <laughs> Sam's put: Is Martial be- already better than Messi, or just as good as him? So. Joel, what are your thoughts on sort of Martial as a as a transfer? Is it a bit of a, you know, 
flash in the pan is a bit of a unexpected one, or do you think that this is actually going to be a good signing? I I don't know with young players, and I think it depends. Let's say you have a model where you can bring up 20 players that are like roughly as good as Martial uh, right now. They have the same kind of growth prospects, whatever. And then in 10 years, uh, 10 of those have made it. So half of them have made it and half of them haven't. Is that because the model is getting them 50% correct? Or is that because these players have a 50% chance of becoming good players? I.e., are the players predetermined to reach a certain level or... Is there even in even at Martial's age, even at their age, um, a variability in their possible career outcomes? If it's if there's variability at that kind of price at fifty million or whatever it is, it could be ten different figures. You are looking at the Neymars, the Pogba's, the Goetzes. Maybe I've got price calibration wrong, and you're looking at the tier below the Neymars, the Pogba's, and Goetzes. But you're looking at absolute like really elite level talents that are definitely, definitely going to make it pretty much unquestionably. Even if they don't, they're still going to be very, very good players. Is Martial that player? I'm not sure. I didn't really watch Monaco last season, so I can't really say. But I'm a little bit scared that United are making a very expensive bet. On Martial alone, that's fine, but you can only make so many uh, like hugely overpriced transfers before even for a club of United, it starts to become a bit of a problem. So if they think that he's genuinely going to be the next Thierry Henry, fantastic. Obviously, in hindsight, that transfer is going to look amazing. But if we think that there is variability in his possible career outcomes, then considering what he's shown so far, I'm not sure that you can show that he is this, like, currently, uh, that there's significant reason to believe that he is this elite world-class talent. And on that basis, I'd be a little bit scared. Now, a few things on this. Firstly, I think when you name all those players and say, okay, they might be, I think they'd all be a little more expensive than this transfer was. But when you look at those players, the price that Man United would have to pay for any of those players would be at least twice as much as they played for Martial. So I think... They're all, they're all three years older, though. I'm talking about, like, three years ago, you were still talking about your Neymars, your Goethe's, your Pogba's. You knew that they were the elite talents of that day. I think if, you, if Manchester United was signing Neymar from Santos, they would have paid... I mean, well, Barcelona already paid a ridiculous amount there when they made the transfer. But I think United would have paid uh, more, probably. Especially post-Ferguson. I mean, everyone knows that Woodward is Woodward. And he's people have got a lot of United for... I mean, we've overpaid for just about everyone this transfer window, probably other than Schneiderlin and Memphis, the two I'd argue we have. Oh, maybe Schweinsteiger. The two the ones I argue we haven't. But with, I mean, with Martial, I think you're signing a guy who has this superstar potential who can be the next Henri or whatever. And I think when you look at a, when you look at this sort of potential, if it doesn't pan out, it doesn't pan out. But if you want that kind of guy who has that, you've got to pay this sort of trans. Well, Manchester United will have to pay this sort of transfer price. Other clubs, maybe not. But this position we're in, we're going to have to do it. And I would rather spend money on someone like that than someone like Falcao, obviously. I mean, I, so I think... <laughs> the options are Martial and Falcao. <laughs> no, but I think, well, it's a different approach. I mean, last year, you look at who United went out for. I still think the Dumeria signing was a good one that just didn't pan out. But guys like, I mean, this is the exact opposite of last year, selling Welbeck and bringing in Falcao. This is, okay, we're letting go a few, a couple older players like Falcao. Like, well, Chichiri doesn't that old, but he's still older. And bringing a young guy and taking a taking that risk, I'd rather take a risk on the front end than I would on the back end of maybe this guy's going to give us two years before he falls off a cliff, rather than maybe this guy will get good and maybe he won't get good. So I'm, I'm much happier with this risk. 
so you think it's you think it's a fifty million pound risk. I like I'm just I'm a little bit scared about that. If he has a fifty percent chance of becoming uh the tier below Thierry Henry and you have to spend a hundred million on two players in the hope that one of them becomes there, I guess then it becomes then it becomes acceptable. But I'm not sure that the chance is fifty percent, so I don't think the analogy works. <sighs> yeah, maybe it's with two stuck in the past. One other thing I wanted to say is one thing that really annoyed me this weekend was the people, if you're saying Makeda this week, you're an idiot. Really good season. Well, good. I mean, as I said, I don't haven't watched much Monaco. I know him from when he played Arsenal last season. So I can't, but it, like his numbers are good. He has experience. This isn't just a guy who's coming up out of nowhere. I mean, he has done well at a club before this. I think that it's also worth looking at behind the transfer, more at the sort of agent side of things. I mean, Monaco, are a really, really quite a shady team. They're sort of the breakdown of their squad in terms of agents, and they have a lot of the, the guys in there uh, are sort of have an agent in, uh, Jorge Mendes. Um, you look at Martial's agency, and they have a whole host of up-and-coming talents on their books. And I sort of feel that quite a bit of this transfer is going to be in terms of sort of, uh, you know, sort of a golden handshake in terms of, you know, here's 30, 30 million for Martial. Here's an extra 20 to give Man United sort of first refusal on a lot of your sort of talents of the future. And I think that there's not been enough of this in the media. Maybe I'm wrong, but equally, if you look at the uh, the guys that this agency has on transfer markets, quite a few of them you'd think in a year or so's time could be available and quite a few of them potentially could fit Man United as well. Um, and as much as I think he's going to be a good player and he could be the next Henri, it's it's really hard to look past that and just completely ignore it, considering the sort of age of agents we live in, uh, in sort of the transfer windows, uh, in, you know, current day. Wow. Conspiracy theories on uh, analytics, I think. That's, the, that's, cons- that's big. Conspiracy theories and hot takes, it's all here. <laughs> yeah, United have been involved in that, or probably have been involved in that in the past, uh, with Bebe, who... I think when you look into it, it looks like he was a down payment to Jorge Mendes on uh, on other players that he represents. So I wouldn't be surprised. We'll see, we'll see. I, I definitely think there's something there in terms of a research opportunity in terms of sort of looking at uh, player transfers and agents and whether there is quite a big relationship between, uh, you know, sort of the same agents deal with the same clubs with the, the players that they represent. It's all a bit of a shady area because the data on this is very much... I mean, it's on transfer marks, but you don't know how reliable that is. But equally, it's quite an interesting area. It's quite an interesting question. And I'd be, you know, it would be good to see in the next few transfer windows for United, whether they keep going back to the same agent or, you know, there's going to be any link to this in the future. But yeah, hmm. another angle. That's a, that's a super interesting angle. You should write about it. Uh, I might have to. <laughs> cool. Um, Sam, should we go to questions from Twitter? I think we had a, a couple this week. Yeah, so the first one, which was interesting, was does Mesut Ozil's amount of chances created to assist ratio show how bad Arsenal need a striker? And I think this came from a tweet from Michael Jongsma, who said something, I think, he, Mesut Ozil had the highest number of chances, or dangerous chances created to assist in the Premier League over the past year. Uh, for me, I just think that chances created and assists, there's obviously a lot of noise between those two. 
Um, you know, you have variance in finishing rates. You don't know how, you know, with chance created as well, you, you don't really know, I guess you're saying dangerous, but on the face of chance creation, you don't know how good a quality chance that is. Um, I could just pass to you, Sam, and you decide to shoot, and that suddenly turns to a chance created, but you've just shot from the halfway line or something like that. Like, without bringing that sort of quality, uh, sort of, you know, you know applying value, sorry, uh, to these sort of chance creations and shots using something like expected goals or expected assists, it's really hard to sort of just look on the on the on the face of it and say, oh, I also need a finisher because we know the noise in finishing. We we know the noise in terms of um, you know getting shots on goal and things like that. So I think that also with with Özil, as we mentioned previously, uh, Joel used the example of Giroud, but I think for Arsenal, Özil is that player who makes everyone else around him tick and is sort of you know the guy that makes the whole squad or the whole team sort of play better. Uh, but that's a different <laughs> a different question. But I think that with Arsenal, like you said, we've seen previously, uh, if you run the games again, they score more than three or four goals with the same amount of shots that they've had. So I think that you know the striker fits the media narrative perfectly in terms of underperforming, not scoring, get a new striker in. But equally, I think that it's just down to luck, or not probably not luck, but just the randomness of shooting and, and the randomness of goals. Uh, Joel, would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think you made the point brilliantly. Um, also, uh, the question implies that um, there is something that needs to show how badly Arsenal need a striker, but Arsenal do need a striker, and and that's obviously the consensus. But I'm not sure it's entirely true. Uh, Shiru, when you adjust for per ninety, when you take out penalties, whatever, his goal scoring rate last season was very, very, very good. It, like, it was better than, I think it was better than Lewandowski, than Cavani, like, a couple of strikers, which uh, some people would describe as, you know, the elite, the world class. Um, and, you know, he offers so much more than that as well, and he's he's very much so not just that uh, that Charlie Austin that, that shoots well, but maybe doesn't offer anything outside of that. He very much so does, and outside of Shuri, you have Theo Walcott, who Michael Cayley said recently is one of the very few players, apart from Lionel Messi, where you can really notice a um, significant level of finishing skill there that's clearly an exceptional finisher. I think he's a good striker. You have Joel Campbell, who did very well for Costa Rica. Alexis Sanchez, maybe it's not his preferred position, but he's a fantastic player. Danny Welbeck, out for a long time, but again, a very good utility forward. I think there are more important positions that Arsenal need to strengthen uh, than striker. Cool. So that about wraps it up for this week. And we have a few updates we want to get into just before we finish, which firstly, I mean, the reason we haven't recorded in two months is that I've moved and Tom was on vacation as well. So now I'm actually, I'm in London. Tom and I met. I can confirm he's a real person. <laughs> and um, But I think we're going to be much more regular from now on in. Hopefully back to weekly, knock on wood. Um, is there anything else you want to add, Tom? Yeah, just that really sort of hopefully weekly, fortnightly, depends on our timetables. Oh, student life, can't wait. Um, but no, just that really. Um, yep, hopefully hopefully back for good now for a, for a good while. Um, and yeah, keep it regular. But um, Joel, anything you, you want to plug? Um, if you'll allow me to, uh, I'm Messy Seconds on YouTube and Twitter and in the bio of my Twitter account, you can find the other endeavours that I attempt to do. Brilliant. You've been a, a really interesting uh, guest and someone you know we've wanted on for a while. So uh, yeah, thank you for your time. Hopefully have you on again soon. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure coming on. Awesome. Cheers, Sam. Cheers. Cheers.